The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Hello and welcome to this episode of Talk Innovation, the podcast from the European Patent Office. Today, you will hear about a technology which led to the development of a medical device that helps improve the quality of life of millions of people around the world. And this day in and day out. The technology was invented and patent protected at the University College Dublin in collaboration with the private company Biomedical Research. Hi everybody, my name is Stephanie Weber. I'm a member of the European IP Help Desk and we've teamed up with the European Patent Office to bring you a new series of case studies centered around technology transfer. And this case is part of it. With these case studies, we aim to show how patents facilitate technology transfer from universities and public research organizations in Europe and help boost the market success of novel inventions. With me here today are two experts without whom this particular business success story would not have been possible. Firstly, Brian Caulfield, Professor of Physiotherapy at the University College Dublin and Lead Research. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Brian. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to be here. And also joining us is Kieran Abern, who is the Head of Knowledge Transfer at the University's Technology Transfer Office. Kieran and his team have been responsible for identifying, protecting, and commercializing the intellectual property that arose from the research project. And he's also the author of the case study. Welcome, Kieran. Yeah, thank you very much, Stephanie. It's a pleasure. So since we've been a bit secretive about the technology in question in our intro, I guess it's about time we lift the veil. So Brian, your technology solves a medical problem that many patients are often too embarrassed to talk about. And this problem is stress-induced incontinence. However, and I was surprised by the figures, to be honest, it's a major medical problem that affects every third woman and every 10th man every single day which adds up to around 400 million people around the globe. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit more about the technology? So yes, as you say, uh, stress urinary incontinence is a major challenge. And one of the things we, we address in stress urinary incontinence in the rehabilitation or in the therapeutic interventions is to try and strengthen and re-educate the muscles of the pelvic floor because that, that's one of the key issues um, that is faced by people with SUI is that their pelvic floor musculature is is not either not firing at the right time or is not strong enough to, to fulfill its role. So what we have developed in collaboration with BMR uh, in this research is a, a very effective clinical application of uh, electrical muscle stimulation that enables people to perform rehabilitation in their own home using surface electrodes that are applied in, in a pair of shorts um, and a small handheld uh, electrical muscle stimulation device. And as I mentioned, it's very effective at managing stress urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, the, the technology itself, electrical muscle stimulation, had been around for quite a while. Um, and so what was actually the new application area that you found, which then also formed the basis to develop this, you know, new product in Novo um, that is now being sold to patients worldwide. Yes, electrical muscle stimulation technology has been around since the 1800s and it has been applied to a wide variety of applications in rehabilitation and sport. Largely speaking, over that time, uh, EMS has, leave, has used pairs of electrodes over the target neuromuscular tissue. And one of the challenges there is that you get um, 
dispersal of the current in the superficial tissues, and it's not a very efficient use of the current. We worked with BMR to develop a new approach to generation of pulses for electrical muscle stimulation. Um, we call this multipath, and what we do in multipath, instead of using pairs of electrodes um, around the target tissue, we use an array of electrodes, usually larger in size than conventional stimulation, and we switch the pathways of the current, or we switch the active electrodes in the array during pulses. The net effect of it is that we can get a much more efficient, deeper contraction of target neural tissue, and we can actually preferentially stimulate deeper muscle groups um, over superficial ones if we wish to. No, thanks a lot. It seems that it has been quite a journey from you know that development and further development of the technology to actually this new product in Novo, which is now the flagship product that is being sold worldwide to patients. And could you trace this journey? So from this idea to the product, actually. My role in this was the academic researcher and we collaborated uh, through a project that was funded by Enterprise Ireland, um, one of the national agencies that funds um, commercial development of, of research. In fact, one of the interesting things about this story is that we, the team that were already in UCD that were working on this technology, we knew an awful lot about electrical stimulation. We knew nothing about stress urinary incontinence, but we did, we knew enough to know that it was, it was an application where we could potentially have a really good effect if we could just figure it out. But we weren't experts in the, in that specific clinical um, application. A, a specialist physiotherapist in, in incontinence management, Ruth Maher, um, who was an Irish therapist who had been working in the United States, came back to Ireland at just the right time and actually approached us to say, I'm interested in doing a PhD in UCD. And we just, we had just the right project for her. So we worked together with Ruth to try and understand how we could use this multipath technology to get a really good contraction. And we used uh, ultrasound um, technology to, to enable us to understand when we were achieving the right stimulation protocol in um, volunteer patients who, who came into our laboratory. And once we um, felt that using this ultrasound feedback that we were able to get a really deep contraction um, of the muscles, we then instituted a very small prospective clinical trial with only 13 people. And we found that we actually, we were completely taken aback by the results because the results were were phenomenally positive. That gave BMR um, the positive feedback that they needed to go out and start to execute further, you know, randomized controlled trials in a clinical setting following all the standards of GCP and, and bring that to the regulatory authorities. We did that first trial to do proof of concept. We then protected the IP. We wrote up some papers on our first set of studies where we were demonstrating the strength of the contraction using ultrasound feedback. And we did that prospective trial. But from there on, the university was not part of the research journey. Thanks a lot, Brian. And I'd like to pass on the ball to, to Kieran at this um, point. Being the head of knowledge transfer, 
I'd like to hear a little bit more about your views on this industry academy collaboration, which has proven to be a very um, successful one. And what were the steps that you had to take um, to make this technology transfer really work and, you know, take it to the next level? Um, thanks, Stephanie. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. And um, maybe before I just go on and talk about sort of the, the follow-on from Brian's discussion following the clinical trial element to it, I'm actually go back a step because um, around the initial collaboration, the Technology Transfer Office put in place a collaboration agreement with the company. And when we, when we do that, we, we meet with the company, we, we meet with the researchers, we try and understand the objectives of the project. Uh, and then we put in place an agreement between the parties, the university and the company that reflects the needs of the project and recognizes the rights of the two parties. So in that regard, and with specific reference to the intellectual property issues, what we did was we allowed for the, um, the ownership of sole intellectual property, if it was solely created by either party. But we also recognized that in this particular case, and given the very close links between uh, Brian and his research team and the company, uh, and also the fact that a company employee was involved in the project, there was a high probability that much of the intellectual property was going to be jointly owned. So our collaboration agreement allowed for the um, the creation and the ownership of the IP would be jointly owned. And indeed, that is actually what subsequently ensued. So when the um, project got underway and the data and the results were generated, we would be then working closely with the company and the research team um, to ensure that when it was appropriate that we you know, filed a patent application. So um, the agreement was very important because it actually kind of outlined the parameters of, of the IP, who's going to own and who's going to have the rights to, to use. And with respect to the rights to use the intellectual property, when we enter into these academic industry collaborations, we always look at the strengths of each party. We recognize that in, in, the, on the, in the academic side, our strengths are on the research. However, if we're looking for to translate the research outputs for wider societal and economic good, we have to have a partner to do that, a commercial partner. So we needed then to, to ensure that our commercial partner, namely biomedical research, uh, had the necessary rights. So we did that by granting the company uh, an option to negotiate an exclusive license to the uh, relevant intellectual property that we had protected. And in turn, BMOR exercised that option and that then led to the grant of an exclusive worldwide license that was field restricted in the area of stress urinary incontinence. And it was from there then that BMR kind of took the project more in-house and did further development and validation of the data and that had been generated in the initial collaboration. And from that then, that led to the product launch. Thanks a lot, Karen, for explaining that a little bit more, because indeed, I think if we have, especially with industry academia collaboration, I think it's important to, to note that we have partners come to sit at one table that may have quite different mindsets, but also interests. So I think also with regard to, to what, what I find is interesting to hear a little bit more about also is, of course, we have the commercialization part, but what about also the research and research publications? Um, Brian, have you still been able to to publish work uh, that was related to the research project as well? 
And how did you balance the, you know, the interest between, of course, protecting um, as, you know, the fundamental basis for further commercialization and then also publication, scientific publications? Uh, I think we're very lucky um, to be working with BMR on this. And I, I think Karen has alluded to, we, we had a very strong relationship with BMR and a very good working partnership with them. And in particular, the technical director there, Connor Minogue, is somebody we had worked with and actually have continued to work with um, over the intervening years. And as a company, um, they were very keen to have, you know, to follow appropriate scientific practice and to have credibility in the scientific community and in the clinical community for any of their products. Uh, the world of electrical muscle stimulation, unfortunately, is... Um, is, is full of companies that, um, make shoddy me too, uh, merchandise and, you know, sell it on infomercials on late night TV. And it is, it is a technology, uh, it's a technology space that, that has a credibility issue. And BMR as a company, we're always very keen on saying, I mean, they're a company that's been around for a long time. They're not a fly by night company. And they have always um, prided themselves on only delivering products into the market that they know work and therefore will have a sustainable, you know, uh, place in, in, the, in the market. So that was a really good place to be starting from. And from the very first time I ever met BMR, that was very clear to me that they, they had that ethos and it wasn't a case of, um, you know, stack them high, sell them cheap. Um, and mm. that meant that they were always very keen for us to be publishing. The only thing we would do is uh, we would have, and that was baked into our agreement with them on, on, in a legal basis. And the only thing we needed to do was to discuss the timing of publication with them. And the, you know, to just to, to prevent any issues around disclosure of IP, um, and in some cases, um, along our journey with them, they, they may have asked us to delay timing of publication to coincide with a launch of product into a particular marketplace or something like that. But we've, we've been lucky that, you know, scientific dissemination has always been a key feature, um, or a key goal for the company. And in fact, in nearly all of our industry collaborations, that, that is a, that is a key goal for companies. If, if I can uh, jump in there and add to what Brian has um, stated, Stephanie. Yes, sure, Kieran, um, go on. Yeah, yes. the publication clauses would be an important clause in our collaboration agreements. Uh, and typically speaking, we would always share the publication with the industry collaborator in advance of its submission to whatever journal was, was being chosen. Uh, and that enables the company to review and have input into the publication um, but it also ensures that there's no inadvertent disclosure of intellectual property that could be patent protected before we've had an opportunity to do so. Uh, and it also gives the company an opportunity to ensure that none of the company's confidential information that may have been shared with the university as part of the collaboration is going to be inadvertently disclosed. But again, you know, it really is down to a good working relationship between the parties and, and, and importantly, trust. Uh, and so, you know, while it is a standard clause in, in most of these bilateral collaboration agreements, you know, the parties working together with a common objective, uh, it's, a, it's a very seamless process when it goes very well. 
Yes, indeed. And as, as particularly in this case, you seem to have been able to really sort of, you know, transparently <clears throat> recognize the needs of all partners and define incentives that, you know, would work, mutually work for both partners as well, um, which seemed to me is, is one of the key aspects which, which led to the success of this collaboration, adding on to what you've just said, Kieran. Um, maybe we could um, come back to this journey of, um, of this technology because um, moving on a little, and I know you've been not involved directly in that process, but the product itself took quite uh, a development. And at some point, um, BMR decided to, to enter the, the international market, specifically the US market. Um, Kieran, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more of, you know, what have been the challenges with regard to that and how could um, intellectual property and the points that you that had been already defined in the agreements helped to to sort of you know uh, support that process and, and facilitate that process. Sure, in in many ways the um, the launch of product um, was a relatively short time frame after the license agreement was executed. So just to give you a, an idea in terms of um, years, the the license agreement was signed in two thousand and eleven. Uh, and then there was a product launch uh, in sort of late 2013 or early 2014. Uh, and in the meanwhile, the patent was progressing in the background to the patent offices in Europe, the US and elsewhere. Um, so when the product was initially launched, it was really targeted towards uh, European markets, uh, primarily UK, Ireland, and actually importantly, Germany. Um, and there was also an associated launch in Saudi Arabia, but it was always considered that while these were important markets, they, how would I put it, the main market to, to kind of crack was going to be the US market. So while European sales were, were taking off and the company adopted different approaches, by the way, in terms of its, its uh, marketing and sales strategies, um, initially it was done very much by, um, <clears throat> engaging with, um, gynecologists and using selling the product through referrals through professional professionals um, increasingly then it kind of adopted a more um, direct consumer marketing approach but with respect to the US market since you since you it was part of your question and um, I guess what really happened with a crucial time was just around 2016 2017 so it was decided that strategically, that BMR Biomedical Research would spin out a company that was specifically dedicated uh, to the um, promotion and marketing of the, the product now called the Innova product. And um, they spun out a company called Atlantic Therapeutics. And Atlantic Therapeutics very quickly thereafter um, secured quite significant investment. Uh, there was 15 million euro was raised uh, through a syndicate of venture capital firms and combined then with the management team, some of whom had actually worked in biomedical research, the company then sought to um, gain traction in the US market. Now, as it turned out, it was a harder task than initially envisaged. And, and part of the reason is that, well, obviously there was other products on the market that they had to obviously and, you know, try and gain some market share. But there was also, they discovered, um, a, a huge need to educate consumers on the needs of, on the, well, on urinary stress incontinence in general. And the fact that there were suitable products, non-invasive products that were actually 
uh, that could um, help um, resolve the the medical issue. And that those activities are still ongoing. So currently, while the product is selling in the US, the company has actually raised uh, a further 23 million on top of the 15 million. And more recently, they raised another 5 million. So despite nearly 50 million of investment going in, um, the company would still see that there's more work to be done to really gain market penetration in the US. And then obviously beyond the US, then they're looking at a more worldwide um, kind of um, global reach and um, countries such as Japan, where there's a higher proportion of elderly people. And China, obviously, as a huge market would be in the company's sites. So it's been a journey for, for Atlantic Therapeutics and, and BMR. Um, but it's a journey that is, um, you know, increasingly showing very positive uh, results. Yeah, and I think it's also worthwhile um, stressing once more that especially the, the strategy with regard to um, IP protection and the patents have been crucial, uh, I guess, for, you know, this whole commercialization process. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously, when the investors were looking this at this as an investment opportunity, you know, as part of the investors' due diligence, they, they would have looked at the, the, the strength of the intellectual property and would have commissioned independent studies. And in all of those kind of due diligence studies, the intellectual property, the patents that had been put in place um, stood up to the scrutiny. Uh, and indeed, there's been further improvements made um, by the company to the patents. So there's now a patent family built up around the technology. Um, and increasingly, there's other intellectual property rights as well that have been brought to bear, such as trademarks uh, for the, you know, the brand name Innova and so forth. So what you now have is a, a portfolio of intellectual property um, built around the core technology that had been developed uh, as part of the initial research collaboration. Thanks. And maybe, Brian, um, from your perspective as a researcher, we, we do see sometimes that, that there are researchers that are not aware, um, still not aware of, you know, the necessity and also the benefits of protecting the research. Um, you seem to be quite the opposite. Um, and I would like to hear a little bit more from your, from your end. Um, how do you see this collaboration also, particularly with the, with the technology transfer office? What have been your personal experiences on, on that journey? And how do you look at um, this task to protect IP um, in order to give it a chance to be commercialized from a researcher's perspective? I think we're really lucky in UCD um, that the technology transfer office and Kieran and his team have have been excellent, you know, right since the very beginning of my time in the university in reaching out and breaking down the barriers between technology transfer and the academics who are who are you know involved on the ground uh, uh, executing the research um from a very early stage in my career i would have had cases where the tech transfer team were coming to our school meetings and you know were making us aware of their services making us aware of their their role in the in the process so an awful lot of outreach activities before this project ever kicked off um i remember attending some seminars over in the tech transfer office where you know they would have had uh, morning or afternoon sessions 
bringing in people who had been through the tech, tech transfer process and giving us case studies, showing us how the process works, equally uh, making us aware of how important, um, you know, uh, how important it was to be aware of potential disclosure um, issues and breaches. So I think that that's a really important thing in any academic organization. I have worked alongside people from other academic institutions where that relationship is not so strong. Um, and it does lead to a lot of challenges. Um, I equally have found that we've worked with some industry collaborators that when we tell them, for example, that in our projects we ha- have IP committees and we have processes to prevent on, on, unwanted disclosures and they're, they're quite surprised. So right throughout the process of, you know, making us aware of, of our obligations or making us aware of the pitfalls of doing things the wrong way through to when I would have had the initial conversation with BMR around, around, you know, formalizing a research project in this field. Kieran and his team, you know, come in and help us right throughout the process. And I have to say they, they've, they've always done it in a way that, um, that doesn't, it, it helps you rather than hinders you. So I, I don't view the, the, the intellectual property management process as a hindrance, um, to the smooth passage of a research project. It's something that, that very much, um, benefits it and, and you know, kind of runs long silently in, in the background. So Stephanie, I, I'm very I'm very happy to uh, to receive those compliments from yeah. Brian, but but I would also reciprocate uh, and um, and just state that working with Brian and researchers like Brian is really rewarding. And um, mm. you know, it's great when you can see researchers who are interested in solving a problem, a scientific problem, and um, but it's even better when you work with researchers who are solving a problem which is addressing a non-med clinical need, and you know, it really does align with the, you know, the strategic objectives of the university in general. Sure, we are institutes of education. We do, you know, teach and we do research. But increasingly, we want to see that the results of that research are actually transferred out for wider societal economic good. So, you know, when you, when I work with the likes of Brian and, um, and I pay Brian a compliment as well in the sense that Brian now is, is not just he hasn't just this license deal behind him, but Brian has become a bit of a, a serial entrepreneur within the university. So I don't know if this bug for innovation arose as part of this initial collaboration with BMR, but Brian has carried this forward in his further research projects uh, over the last 10 years. And um, two spin-out companies have come out of Brian's research group. Um, and, you know, that's that's a that's a great track record to have. Absolutely. So Brian himself is kind of a catalyst within his particular area in the university. And that culture of innovation that Brian has, he imbues that with his research teams. And in turn, that trickles out through the university. So you know, it's a real pleasure in working with, with Brian and, and the team. But but also with respect to the the role of the technology transfer office, and Brian says, yeah, we'd have coffee mornings and we'd kind of Outreach and things like that. We do see that as an important part of our, of our role. Um, but really it's about establishing trust. It's breaking down the barriers. It's, it's, it's communicating clearly to researchers, you know, the benefits 
of transferring their research. Uh, and increasing now in Ireland, it's not just getting a license agreement over the line is, is, the, is the outcome. It's about impact. And the impact is when you or new products or services are launched on the back of that. Thank you very much, um, Brian and Kieran, for sharing these valuable insights and this really very um, interesting case uh, with us. Unfortunately, we need to come to an end here. However, if you would like to know more about the fascinating technology transfer that led to the success of Atlantic Therapeutics with its product Noble or if you are indeed interested in any other of our case studies, then please visit the um, EPO website at epo.org slash SME. And if you enjoyed this podcast about a technology transfer with a real-life impact, and we do hope, of course, you did, then tune in to our upcoming episodes in which we will be spotlighting the other case studies too. But for today, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be back soon for another Talk Innovation podcast. Goodbye. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org, or on your favorite podcast platform. Let's talk innovation.